We're going to continue this morning as we walk through a little bit more of the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'd ask you to take your Bibles right now and open them to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. If you're using that book rack Bible, you can find it on page 1039. Uh, If you have a smartphone or a tablet, you can certainly open up that as well. If you took a sermon outline on your way in, you can pull that out right now. You also find it on our Three Crosses app. You can download it quick, and you can take notes that way too. We're going to spend a total of five weeks in this book of Ecclesiastes, which is not nearly enough, but it certainly is giving us a bird's eye view of some really important themes that come out in this book. And remember, this is all part of the good life. This is about learning how to live wisely in this life. That's what this whole theme has been about. We've been through the book of Proverbs, now we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we said that the first two weeks of Ecclesiastes is what we call, or what I'm calling anyway, the dark matter of the book. Uh, we're looking at the fact that we chase after a lot of things. We look for meaning in life by going after wisdom or going after pleasure or going after wealth or materialism or going after work or going after relationships or going after even religion. These are ways that we go after ways to find the meaning of life. And the book of Ecclesiastes is telling us that all of those pursuits as meaningful as they may be in some way, is, are not ultimate meaning. They're never going to give us ultimate meaning. And so then, compounded to that reality, we've got the fact that last week we looked at the critic, who is sort of the one walking us through these truths from the book of Ecclesiastes. This critic says that as you observe life, there's this apparent randomness. Now we know that life isn't completely random. We know there's a sovereign God who is orchestrating his purposes in the world, but life under the sun just looks like it's random. Plus there's the certainty of death. Plus there's the pervasiveness of evil. Plus there's the marching of time. And plus there's the mystery of God. And all of these things, the critic says, makes it hard to believe that there can be meaning in life. And so this is the dark matter of the book. Now today we're going we're gonna to pivot a little bit and we're going to do that by looking at the difference between religion and relationship. And this is where the book really, I think, gives to us the shining laser beam point to where we need to go to find life. Remember, Ecclesiastes isn't going to answer the question, it's only going to ask the question. And the question that it asks is, what really is the meaning of life? What really is it? And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the counterbalance to all the meaninglessness of life is found in a relationship with the living God, a love relationship with the living God. And we're going to see that this morning. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 5. The best way to introduce this text is just by telling a brief little story that has been multiplied over and over in my life, but one time in particular, I'll never forget, walking into a hospital room where I was going to visit a person who was dying of cancer. Uh, this person was a very successful businessman. He had all the wealth that a person could hope for in life. Uh, he was very well satisfied that way. He had a beautiful family. Uh, he was raised religiously and religiously was a part of attending church, not this church, but another church. And in his background and all of the things that mattered in his life, uh, he had summoned me by his family to come and visit him at the hospital. And so 
I came, and as I walked in the room, I introduced myself, and he said, uh, I introduced myself again. I had met him previously to this, but he said to me, Larry, Pastor Larry, he said, uh, I've been a religious man all my life, but I realize that there's something desperately missing in my life, and can you help me? Now, I've had that kind of conversation with dozens of people, and in different kinds of contexts, but that one sticks out to me, and I'll tell you why at the end of the message. The beautiful thing about that question was is that it, it, it sort of tees up for all of us today uh, how a person, how it can be possible to be a religious person and, and still at the, what would look like the end of your life, seem to have a real serious doubt as to whether you are prepared to leave this world and enter eternity. And I want to address that this morning. Uh, it's a beautiful day to do that. We're celebrating communion this morning. We're going to take of the Lord's given body and shed blood as a reminder to us in the symbol of a little piece of bread and a, a cup of juice, reminding us that this is the way God loved the world, that he sent his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And I, I'm just praying, I've been praying and asking others to pray that there might be someone in a crowd this size today that would move from a religious experience with God into a personal dynamic relationship with him. And I, maybe you'd just be praying for the people that are sitting around you this morning because I believe that God wants us to see this in a powerful way. So follow along as I read from Ecclesiastes 5 as the critic tells us a little bit about religion under the sun. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at, you, at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. Well, this might seem like a curious text to some of us, but let me just sort of give you the context. Remember, the critic is giving us what life looks like under the sun. And he's actually kind of going against formalized religion here in this text. He's going to actually speak to the fact that there are a lot of people that are going through religious experiences that do not have what the end of verse 7 says, an awe of God. The remedy to a life of, of uh, religiousness is to really enter into a life completely taken away by the awe of God, seeing God for who he is. And we're going to see what that looks like a little bit this morning. If you're taking notes, the big uptake to this whole passage, verses 1 through 7, is this. That until we possess a true awe of God, we're likely to merely experience religiousness in our spirituality. Uh, we're likely to be merely religious in our spirituality. This is what this text is saying. That until God becomes preeminent in your life, there's a tendency for all of us just to become religious. Now I want to talk about four things from this text that depict religiosity. And there, again, there may be someone here today that this is just meant right for you. God wants to speak to your heart. He wants to show you that 
It's time to move from religiousness into a relationship with him. So if you're taking notes, first, our approach to God is characterized by only casual deference coupled with an unexamined heart. Everybody say the words unexamined heart. Notice verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. This is a way of saying examine yourself. Take a look at what's going on in your life. Don't just come in for the sake of going in. Uh, In this first salvo of the critics' observations about the religious person void of relationship, is someone striding into the household of God with very little thought as to where they're going or to whom they are about to meet. For folks like this, God is perceived usually as the man upstairs, the big guy in the sky. Uh, He's aloof, he's indifferent, he's distant, he's unsympathetic to our needs. He's other than, but not in the sense of beauty or majesty. He's just simply unknowable and impossible to understand. This is the way religious people tend to look at God. He's out there, but he can't be known personally. There's a lot of us that know people like this, perhaps. Uh, And the interesting thing about, and maybe there's someone here today that this would be your life, a religious person actually can carry around very orthodox views of God. A religious person can know very important things about God. That, for example, God is, uh, is just, or that God is loving, or that God uh, is everywhere. But the problem with the orthodoxy of just a religious person is that it's never personalized. God is just, but he's not fair with me, or he's not fair with those people over there. And so there's sort of this complaint or God is loving but I just don't feel his love or or how do we say that God is loving when we see all the problems in the world religious people can carry orthodox views of God without ever contextualizing them for themselves furthermore religious people are real are rarely considering the condition of their own heart when they go to meet with God do they ever ask the question am I right with God do I know God is there anything in my life that is separating me from God Am I kidding myself? Am I sincerely a believer? Do I possess the marks of a true follower? All of these are questions that the religious person doesn't usually like to engage. And that's because a religious person lives an unexamined life. Don't think about truly where they stand with God. For them, it's usually a filling in of the box. It's a checking of the box. For religious people, when it comes to church, they want to get in and get out. It's about checking the box. And if we're really honest, I think all of us would have to say that there are times in our lives that we act religiously too, even when we're in relationship with God. Um, Some of us, we have the same mentality when it comes to church. We want to get in and get out, you know. We're looking at the watch right now. How much time is left in church? You know, I got to get out into my day. That's the way some of us are. That's, you can be a true follower of Christ and have these tendencies But religious people, it's just kind of the way it is. We're checking the box. We did our obligation. We got through what we needed to do. There's a second thing that I see about religious people in this text, and that is in the end of verse 1. Our attention is on the things that we might do for God rather than considering his true desire for us. At the end of verse 1, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. 
It's kind of like religious people decide for God what's important instead of listening and asking God what is important. It's sort of like we figure out what we think will please God more than what he says plainly will please him. A biblical story, King Saul in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 15, he was told uh, by God to go and destroy the Amalekites and the king and to take all the plunder and destroy it. But Saul had a better idea. Saul thought that he should only uh, uh, subdue the Amalekites, take the king as his prisoner, and keep all the plunder for himself. And then as a gesture of, of wanting to do something for God, he decides to sacrifice some of the best flock that he plundered from the Amalekites to God. And you remember Samuel comes to him, and this is a familiar passage Maybe that's without knowing the context. Now you know the context a little bit. Where Samuel comes to Saul and he says, and let's read this out loud together. Follow along. Here we go. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. And so what Samuel says to Saul is what God says to religious people. He says, look, don't try to think what you think pleases me, just do what I say. It's really simple. And in fact, you remember in the Gospels when Jesus was asked, uh, you know, like what is the most important commandment? Jesus said very clearly, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he goes on to say, love your neighbor as yourself. This is amazing. What he's saying is, we should understand that the simple command of God to love him, to be all in, to say, God, you're everything in my life. That's what God really wants. But religious people choose to go after things that they think God likes, and they'll give their whole life to those things. Whether it's, you know, doing good to others or philanthropy or you could be generous, you could be, you know, a servant in the church. There are a lot of people that serve in the church amazing in amazing ways, but... Somehow it's, it's, it's almost like a compensation for not doing the one thing that God wants us to do. It's kind of like the husband who's cheated on his wife, who's going overboard with flowers and saying nice things, not because he loves her, but because he's compensating for what he, know he's, what he knows he's not doing right for her. There was a kid in the youth group that when I, in, when I first started in youth ministry across the bay, and there's a young kid there. He's a really interesting young guy. He had everything. At 16 on his birthday, man, he had, the, he had the best car. He had a better car than anyone I knew. A sports car. It was like this Gran Torino. You know, you've seen the movie maybe. It was that car. I mean, he had this car. And, and he had motorcycles. And he had all these gizmos and things. And, and he was kind of like the envy of everyone in the youth group. And one day I took him out to lunch and I was talking to him. I said, man, how does it feel? Like you've got like all this stuff. You're 16. You're a sophomore in high school. And he goes, well, you know, it is really cool. But he goes, ah, it's actually my dad. My dad does this stuff to me because he's never around. That's what he said. And I've never forgotten that. I said, whoa. Now, I was too immature as a youth leader and not courageous enough to go have an appointment with the father of this young man and say, man, you are, you are losing your son. You're giving him stuff. But that's not what your son wants. Your son wants you. There are a lot of people, religious people who are compensating, giving God all the things they think are making up for the one thing they won't give him. 
which is their heart and their life. Listen, that's the one thing that God wants in all of our lives. You know, I mean, this is the bottom line of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It means he just wants you. He doesn't want all your service and all your money and he doesn't want all this stuff. He just wants you because when he has you, when you are all in with him, then everything else comes into the right shape. And there might be some, someone sitting here today that you're giving a lot of things to God. You're busy. You might even be serving in this church. You might be doing a lot of things in this church. But the whole rationale for you doing these things is to stay away from the one thing that he wants. He wants your heart. It's true. It happens. In a crowd this size, I know it's true. And you remember in the Old Testament, we don't have time to go through it, but Amos chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 1, God says to people, I hate your songs, I hate your festivals, I hate all the service you're giving unto me, I hate it. God says, I hate it. Wow, why? Because your hearts are far from me, God says. Why is it so hard for us to get that? Well, that's, that's what the critic of Ecclesiastes is saying. This is a religious person who who has slight deference for God but no examination of the heart and is always focused on the wrong things when it comes to serving God or knowing Him. Third thing, verses 2 and 3. There's a disproportionate amount of words offered to God than there is actions to back them up. Uh, boy, this is, this is so true. Look at, do not be quick with your mouth to utter anything before God. You know, the reality is a lot of us are just better talkers than we are doers, right? I mean, we are. I mean, I'm a pastor. I do a lot of talking. I mean, this is for pastors too. And followers of Jesus, legitimate followers of Jesus can fall into these patterns too. We can be religious instead of really, you know, forming our lives out of a relationship with the living God. Um, you know, Jesus warned people when they prayed. He, he warned his disciples. He said, don't pray like the pagans who think they'll be heard by their many words. Matthew 6, 7 says that. By their many words. Pagans might be heard by their many words. Pagans. Jesus was actually calling religious people pagans because they thought they would be heard by just all the words that they share with God. This is a picture of religious people in churches where there are altars and candles and incense and robes and choirs and worship bands and priests and pastors who pray for people and communities. Proper words, but without pure hearts. I was at a wedding yesterday, beautiful wedding, and I was talking to a young man after the wedding who, we just struck up a conversation, and over the course of the conversation, I asked him where he was in his spiritual journey, and and he told me, well, he, you know, was raised in a Christian family and went to Christian education all his life. But he just got so turned off by all the hypocrites he saw and by all the things that people were saying that they weren't really living out. And it just turned him off. And it was just like, wow. And I just kind of let him talk. And he vented a little bit. And, and uh, I, I said, you know, I get it. You know, that's, that's a turnoff for sure. And he talked about things that he saw even in his own family. And it was just a... And I was thinking how often it is that we don't realize the damage we can do when people who know us as Christ followers or because we're religious people, we, they get an idea about us a certain way and, and, uh, and it all goes upside down by a word that they say or an action that they commit or, or some thing that we just don't, doesn't square up. 
And then the young man said to me, he goes, yeah, you know, so I, oh, don't get me wrong. He goes, I, I still love God. It's just the church I can't stand, you know. And I said, well, I get that, but I'm going to take issue with that for a minute, you know. And we, I, I had, you know, kind of my arm around him at this point. There was enough, you know, legitimate relationship value that, that I thought I could say this. I said, you know, we just observed a beautiful wedding. It would be like going to the groom over there and saying, hey, I love you. It's your wife I can't stand. <laughs> I said, the statement that you just said was exactly like that. Because when you say you love God but hate his church, he's the groom, we're the bride. I said, you, so, you know, the point is, I get the thing that you don't like about the church is the thing that God doesn't like about the church too. And boy, then he really started listening. We had a great conversation. And frankly, it was refreshing because he was so honest with where he was. There's a lot of us that are not that honest. I got an email from someone this week. You know, I get these emails now and then. And uh, here's a person I've never met. He introduces himself. He said he was in a, a local uh, coffee shop in town. Not our coffee shop. He was somewhere else. And he said someone walked into the coffee shop, sat down. The first words of their, out of their mouths was a real racist comment. And he was really taken back by that. And he was like, whoa. And he kind of corrected her and said, I, I don't think you should say that. That just doesn't seem right. And she kind of came back and reprimanded him for correcting her and you should, and then she said, you should come to my church where you could learn a little respect. Oh, what church is that? The Church of the Three Crosses. <laughs> and this guy is like saying, now look, I, I, this is a beautiful email. He goes, I, I don't think that this person is representing God the way you would want him to represent. And I don't think they're representing your church, but I just thought you should know. And he said, maybe you should address this sometime. So here we are. <laughs> and <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote him back. I wrote him back. I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. I said, uh, yes, does not represent Christ. Yes, that person does not represent who we are. And number three, I said, I hope you will come sometime and experience this place and see that this is not the tone of our church. It's not the tone of what we're teaching, and this does not represent Jesus, and just, you know, gave him that. So maybe you're here too. Praise God, maybe you're here. If you are, I hope you're here. But the point is, you know, as a pastor, you get those kind of things, and, you know, it's not like I, I don't go, oh, I can't believe this. I mean, I kind of go, oh, man. Because it's true, you know. There's a lot of folks here right now, and we all, this is what I realized, and it was a, the Lord used this to speak to me. It's like we leave here in a little while, and we don't realize that we represent Jesus wherever we go if, we're, if we say we're a follower of Christ, and we represent the church that we associate with. And if we go out and say something dumb, or, or, and I, I don't want to judge even this person. I don't know what the conversation was. I don't know what was really said. But... We represent the Lord and we represent God's people here. And so think about it. When, you, when you're out in your community, when you're in your neighborhood, don't just think that because you're out there it doesn't matter. You can treat people the way you want and then come to church and everything is, you know, eh. Because one of these days, God has a great sense of humor. He's going to put some of those people right next to you in church. You know? Think about it. 
There's a disproportionate amount of words offered to God than there are actions to back them up. That's a lot of religious, that's religion at its core. There's one last thing quickly. Unkept promises and deals make, uh, made with God in exchange for perks are what tend to characterize our interactions with God. In other words, our interactions with God, if we're just religious, is all about making a deal with God. You know, let's make a deal. Remember that show? I'm dating myself, but if you're 50 or so or above, you remember, let's make a deal. Monty Hall, you know. Door number one, door number two, what do you want? And we do that with God. There's a lot of us that we have said, God, if I go to church or if I go to mass, you know, every day, if, I, if, I, if I'm consistent in those things, God, will you keep cancer out of my body? I mean, there's people that make deals with God. If I do certain things, God, you're going to do certain things for me. It's, a, it's, it's like we're wheeling and dealing with God. And that's not the way God works. God is not one to whom we should go to make a deal with. The most important deal that was ever made was the deal that God initiated when he sent his son Jesus and let him die a, a terrible death but rose him from the grave to give us eternal life. And the deal that God offers is that your sin for his righteousness by faith. And that's the deal of a, of a lifetime. And that's the only deal that God's going to make. He wants, he wants that deal to be closed. So, okay, you get it. Uh, this, is, this is religion. This is religion at its core. We, we focus on the wrong things. We give casual deference to God, but we don't examine our hearts. You know, we, we speak a lot, but we don't really think about our actions. And we, uh, we're, dealing. we're dealing with God all the time. That's a religious person. That's religion at the core. So we're going to pivot this because in verse 7 it says, remember, therefore, stand in awe of God. So what does it mean for the critic to stand in awe of God? Well, I think what we could do there is just reverse or invert the things that are about religious people that we've already looked at there, right? So quickly, if you're taking notes, we can just walk through this quickly. Our approach to God is characterized by absolute deference coupled with a thoroughly examined heart. We're always thinking about, am I right with God? Is there anything in my life that needs correction? God, is there anything I've done or said today that would impede you from having your work in my life? Did you do that when you drove into our parking lot today? Were you saying, God, would you straighten out anything that's out of whack with me right now? Would you speak to me today you know, through the foolishness of preaching, would you just show me today something in my life that needs to change? You know, that's what true religion does. That's a person who's rightly connected to God. We approach God much like a fisherman scales down the rocks where the ocean surf pounds below, knowing that any slip or any movement outside of his careful walk might end him up in the in the tumultuous surf. We're careful. There's a respect when we come into the presence of God. Secondly, our attention is focused on what God requires, what God loves, what God desires, not just what we would do for Him. Our attention is focused on what God desires. So we're not ignoring the most important things for the things that are lesser important to somehow satisfy our souls. We're looking at the hard truth of our lives. We're saying, God, okay, I get it. I need, to, I need to hang in here in this relationship, this marriage that's really having a hard time because you've commanded me to be faithful. Um, 
Or, I, Lord, I need to stay involved in a, in a ministry called the church because even though I've been around people that have turned me off, I know that the church is precious to you. Or I need to surrender every part of my life, my checkbook, my sexuality, everything in my life to you because you want me to love you with everything in my life. See, when, when that happens, when those things are going on in our lives, we're concerned first with what God wants not what we think will make him happy. Thirdly, our actions clearly back up our words and views about God and his work in the world. Simply spoken, standing in awe of God is less about talk and more about walk. We're about to go into the book of Job in a few weeks and remember that God didn't speak up until Job shut up. (laughs) It's true. Some of our problem is we just talk too much. We need to listen. And lastly, we follow through on our commitment to God simply because we want to honor God in everything we do. We bought holy into 1 Corinthians 10.31 that says, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So that's, the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't really answer where life or meaning comes from, but it gives us a little window right here, just a little shade, little curtain parting, if you want to get away from religion under the sun, conventional religion, and enter into relationship, these are the things that we should be pursuing. An examined heart, right? We should should give to God what matters most to Him. We should be about our lives and our actions, not about our words. And we should stop making deals with God and simply do what He wants us to do because we know it's the right thing. Now, what does the Bible say about how all this happens? Uh, Ecclesiastes won't tell us, but I can't leave this without giving us a, a broader view of Scripture. So this is going to be real quick. I know you're looking at your blanks. You're going, this is no way Larry can do this. <laughs> I promise you this is going to be the last five minutes of the sermon. Okay, watch this. Jesus said, this is eternal life, John seventeen three, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What God wants for every person in this auditorium today, and what God wants for any person who's living in our culture, is to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what God wants. That's what God wants. And if I could give just a brief, really brief overview of the summary of what that looks like, for the sake of anyone that might be religious and need a relationship with God this morning, Watch this, really fast. Number one, repentance. Write it down. Repentance. God wants us to turn from our sin. The Old Testament word is teshuva, Hebrew word, which means to turn around, have an about face, turn from this way and go this way. Until you can come to the place in your life where you recognize that you are faithless, wicked, sinful, wayward, broken, and in need of healing, you can never have a relationship with the living God because it starts with a repentance. God, I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. And I turn from my sin. Secondly, belief. I need to choose to believe in the promise of God, to say yes to the promise of God. I say, I repent of my sin and I choose to believe. God is on a rescue mission and that rescue mission finds at the intersection of repentance and belief where I recognize that it is through my faith in Christ alone that I receive forgiveness of sins. It is not by my works that I should not boast. It is in belief alone. Repentance, belief, 
surrender. When I have repented and believe on Christ, my life is a daily surrender. Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow me. Every day, it's a surrender to him. Number four, it's about love. God says that we ought to love him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind and love our neighbor as ourself. A summary statement of the life of a true believer, one who is in relationship with the living God, is one that loves as God has us to love. And the book of 1 John says that we're liars if we say we love God and we don't love our brother. Number five, obedience. It's not about sacrifice, we've already read it, but obedience. Listen, obedience isn't a prerequisite for becoming a Christian. Obedience is the byproduct of being a Christian. Did you get that? And so we're not teaching works righteousness. We're saying God says, obey me when you know me. That's the life of a believer. Number four, number, number six, treasure. Christ becomes our treasure. The Apostle Paul says, when I consider every accolade of my life, I consider everything that I have going for me as dung. D-U-N-G. Now that's the English version of, the, uh, of a Greek word that also would sound like hit, but start with shh. <laughs> now, if I just said it, you know, I was tempted to say it, but I don't want to offend anyone unnecessarily, but it's a biblical word. Paul said, when I compare everything I could have in life to knowing Christ, everything in life is, yeah, don't say it. <laughs> but you know, a lot of us, we look, at it, we look at it the other way around. Religious people say, all this stuff is mine. And Jesus, well, I'll fit him in somewhere. And lastly, hope. Summary of the Christian life is not only all these things, but it's hope. God saved us from a hopeless existence by giving us the promise of life after death. Our eyes are set on the certain homegoing to be with our forever family. And if we don't die and go to him first, at some point he's going to come and bring us to be with him. Aren't you glad? So there I was in the hospital room with Robert, and after he asked me the question, I simply laid out for him the simple plan of salvation, and Robert grabbed my hand and he said, that's what I've been missing. I need to know this Jesus. And we prayed, and he asked Jesus Christ into his heart, and his life was changed. And I have a feeling there's someone here today that needs that same response. Trust in Christ today.